On the 26th of June, 1996, I was very excited. The reason was that during that afternoon, I was driving with a friend down to London, actually to Wembley Stadium, to watch England play in football, this is. I know not everyone's a football fan. But England were playing Germany that evening in the semi-final of the Euro 96 championships against Germany. Um, I'd actually just been made redundant. But um, the silver lining was that I was able to watch the games during Euro 96. And my dad actually won tickets for this game, bizarrely, but happened to be on holiday with my mum. What a shame. (laughs) So he he said, do you want to go to the game? Fantastic. And I remember the sense of excitement and optimism that swept the country. And it was all summed up by a song. You may be too young to remember the game itself. Some of you were born after 1996. But um, I'm sure you would recognise the tune. We were going to play a short clip. Is it going to work? Let's see if we can try it. See if you recognise this gene. We'll go on getting back. So getting back. So getting back. So It's only 15 seconds. Do you remember the tune? It's coming home. Football's coming home. It caught on as a sort of anthem at the time. And even if you don't remember the game, you'll recognise the song. I remember that evening standing with 75,000 fans in Wembley Stadium. And the guys who'd written the song were in the Royal Box. And they were conducting the whole crowd to sing this song together. Great anticipation that football was coming home. England were on the brink and going to win a tournament on their home soil. The journey home wasn't as great, (laughs) because as you probably realise, England lost on penalties as they usually do, and to Germany as they usually do. But um, it was very exciting uh, being part of that whole event. Well, you'll know this is number four in our sermon series. And as Ben said, we're thinking about this rich Hebrew word, hesed, which describes the astonishing kindness of God. I mentioned the joyful singing at Wembley because today I want to open up the idea that God's kindness is not only our invitation to pray, as we saw last week, it is also the theme of our song. We have three simple headings, and the first one is this, a joyful homecoming. If you were looking at one, one, I always say one Corinthians. Why do I say one Corinthians? One Chronicles. It begins with the same letter, that's why. One Chronicles chapter 16. Keep your finger in the page here and come with me. This uh, chapter, one, one Chronicles 15 and 16, remind me so much of that day at Wembley. It's obviously not about football. But these chapters are, in a sense, about not football coming home, but God himself coming home. Just think about this with me. One way of looking at the Christian gospel 
is to see it as people coming home to God. This is summed up brilliantly in the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son, isn't it? The prodigal son left his loving father, went off and spent all his money, and eventually came home in his rags smelling of pig food, and found to his astonishment and great delight that his father still loved him and welcomed him home with a massive party. The father said, let's rejoice because the son who was lost is now found. And you, you'll know this description of the Christian life, the Christian conversion is true and wonderful. But looked at another way, the story of the Bible is actually about God moving towards us. Imagine God himself coming to look for you. Imagine God himself coming to your house where you live. Imagine God himself coming to your life and heart. Imagine the God of heaven coming to live with you. This is the real story. And this is what has made God's people all down the ages sing with joy and astonishment. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the smarmy little thief in the Gospels who everyone hated? He climbed a tree to see Jesus. Jesus came to the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today for tea. Later that day, with great joy, Zacchaeus gives away everything that he's stolen, multiplies it by four. Why? Because God had come to his house. Jesus said later, the Son of Man has come to save the lost. Salvation has come to this home. Even though we're the ones who have rebelled against him, in his great kindness, God takes the initiative. He makes the first move. And God comes to take up residence in the midst of his broken but believing people. Actually, I, I did wonder whether these two talks were in the wrong order. You've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Because actually, it is the fact that God comes to us first that enables us to be able to come to him. Now, when we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16, we really have to open the eyes of our imagination wide. This chapter is as big and as glorious and as noisy and as colourful and as happy as Wembley was before England lost. Let me explain. In this period, the presence of God with his people was represented or symbolised by the Ark of the Covenant. This goes back a few hundred years to the time of Moses, who we've been thinking about, because as God's people travel through the desert, God told them to construct a sort of mobile temple. And they would then set this up literally in the desert like a tent. 
and all the tribes of Israel, all the clans would camp around it. It was a wonderful, simple picture that God himself had come to live right in the middle of their community. When the people later came to their own permanent land, there was obviously no need for a mobile temple. So what is happening here in 1 Chronicles is that King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem permanently. What that means is that God himself, having brought them home to their own land, is now coming home to dwell with them in the midst of their nation. This chapter is joyfully exuberant, not so much because the ark is coming home, but because of what it symbolizes that God is is coming to dwell in the midst of his people. In chapter 15, then, King David organizes everything. He appoints several hundred officials to serve, and the procession there sounds like it was over a mile long. It feels like the whole country is involved. Look, for example, at chapter 15 and verse 28. The end of that chapter, we're told, So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And listen, with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. It sounds like a carnival. (laughs) And the king himself is dancing and twirling at the head of the line, followed by singers and musicians. This is the most joyful homecoming that you've ever seen. This is the happiest day of David's life. Can you hear them singing? He's coming home. He's coming home. Not football's coming home. God is coming home. The joy is tangible. Now, it appears that David composed a song especially for this occasion. And uh, Ben read it to us earlier. It wasn't written by Frank Skinner or David Bedell or the Lightning Seeds. David himself writes a song for this occasion. I wish we had more time. But let me just very quickly highlight three things here. First of all, verses 8 to 22. There's three sections here. The first section in David's song is a call to sing praises to God because their own history to this point has been a tremendous story of God protecting them. Verse 16 speaks of promises that God made to Abraham. And then verse 18 speaks of a specific promise that God would bring them to their own land, the land of Canaan. But there's this sense that God has looked after them from the very beginning and all the way through the ups and downs of these journeys. You can see in verse 19, their vulnerability when they were but few in number. Few indeed, they wandered. 
And remember our definition of hesed at the very beginning. When the one from whom you have the right to expect nothing gives you everything. God loves his precious people who have often been anything but faithful to him. And here he comes, he's brought them home. Now he comes to dwell with them and lavish his kindness on them. The God who is coming home is their strength. Look with me at verse 23 down to verse 33. The next section goes cosmic. The the sense here is as they sing, we may be small, but our God certainly isn't. The focus here is that this God who's been their strength is no less than the sovereign king over the whole earth. Verse 23 is actually a call to the whole world. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Look at verse 25. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In verse 31, a little later, it's almost as if all creation itself joins in with this crescendo of praise as the cry rings out, the Lord reigns, he is king. The teeming ocean and the trees in the forests are pictured as singing with joy. The God who is coming home is their awesome creator and king. And in a way, the final section in verse 34 to 36 combines these two ideas. This or their great God who has exerted his infinite power with great compassion to call them out of all the other nations of this broken and arrogant world and to bring them to himself. God has singled them out, rescued them, saved them, brought them together as a new race of worshippers. The God who is coming home is their saviour. Taken together, this whole joyful song that David composes is a celebration of the fact that God has called them, chosen them, sheltered them, protected them, and brought them safely to this point. And now to crown it all, to crown it all, God himself now comes to dwell with them in their capital city. What a colourful and joyful and vibrant and noisy day this must have been. But where do we find the hesed that we've been talking about? Where's the kindness and love of God in all this joy and celebration? Well, hidden away towards the end of this great song is a couple of lines that become a sort of national motto. And they're found in verse 34. 
And I've called this an everlasting jingle. I don't want to be irreverent by using the idea of jingle. You know what it's like when you get a tune in your head and you can't get rid of it. But this is not some shallow advertising jingle that you can't get rid of. Here is a lyric, a melody, a song that God has engraved for us here in granite for all posterity. Write these words down somewhere where you can see them every day. This whole colourful celebration of God coming home to live with his precious people is summed up in this one phrase. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His hesed endures forever. Let me just say three quick things about this little jingle. First of all, I want you to know that it's everywhere in the Bible. To start with, it's right here. But look at verse 41. We didn't read this part, but after this procession, David has got all these different officials. Verse 31, we're told with them were Heman and Jeduthun. And the rest of those chosen and designated by name to give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. It almost sounds to me as if it was the actual job of some officials to literally sing this song all day. Imagine that as a job advert at the job centre. What's your job description? Well, I have a full-time role. As a singer of thanks to God, all day, every day. Why? Because his love endures forever. What a job. A few years later, David's son Solomon builds a permanent building for the ark. And the people sing this exact same song. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 5 and 7. I'm going to get that right in a minute. That temple ends up being destroyed and the people are carried off into exile. But later when they come home and rebuild, they sing the same song again. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. And you know, even the army sing this song on one occasion when they go into battle against their enemies. Sometimes I think of the Lord of the Rings film with those ugly orcs who go into battle and they're like, ooh, ooh. Imagine an army going into battle saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Must have terrified the enemy. This jingle is also all over the Psalms. In one Psalm, we read it earlier, 136. This phrase appears 26 times. So, you get the point. It's everywhere. One writer suggests that these lines were like a sacred formula that became woven into the fabric of Israel's worship as the truth of who God 
is resonated in their hearts. They sang to celebrate the astonishing kindness of God. Secondly, this jingle is eternal. In this song that seems to have become a national motto, the people of God sing that his hesed endures forever. They sense that the kindness and love of God is eternal and everlasting and indestructible. The love that God has for his people is not an emotional whim in him that is transient or fleeting. The passing of time cannot erode it by washing it away gradually or wearing it down. Even their own unfaithfulness has not extinguished his faithful love to them. God is filled with a love that is never dulled. It doesn't decrease. It is reliable and trustworthy and powerful forever. The everlasting hesed in God can be asked for and relied upon and will never fail. And this is why his people sing. Thirdly, it is exceptional. We don't need to turn to it, but when King David's son, King Solomon, builds the first temple to house the ark, King Solomon kneels before God on behalf of the people. We're told that he, he knelt on a huge bronze platform and he spread out his arms to God. And he prays, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. Why? Because you keep your covenant of hesed with your servants. 2 Chronicles 6, 14. Solomon prayed, there is no God like you. In other words, underneath this jingle is the fact that God, in his astonishing kindness, is utterly unique. You may know that the list of rival ancient gods was a very long one. There were, of course, the hundreds of Egyptian gods that they left behind. Some of them we study in uh, school. Horus, Isis, Osiris. There were obviously the new Canaanite gods in the land they came to. Baal, who demanded children be sacrificed to him in the fire. Ashtoreth, who demanded obscene fertility rites to be performed to make the crops grow. Molech, whose altar was actually a furnace with a slope down which children were rolled into the fire as the drums beat super loud to drown out their screams. We could go on to talk about the cruelty of Dagon, the Philistine god, Shemosh, the Moabite god, Marduk, the Babylonian god, 
Can you hear Solomon praying? Oh God, there is no God like you who keeps his covenant of love. These people sing with joy because their God lovingly makes sacrifices for them instead of cruelly demanding sacrifices from them. What a God! It is not surprising that as far as historians can tell, there are no ancient hymns to the kindness of Baal or Molech or Marduk because no other God causes his children to sing with such exuberant joy from the very depths of their hearts because he is unique in being astonishingly kind rather than demonically brutal. Now, of course, we do not worship ancient pagan gods. But is it not the case that our wonderful, crazy, mad world is as full of idols as this ancient world ever was? Fortunes are still poured out in worship. The blood of innocent children is still spilt in their pursuit. But here is a God who stands apart and who is unlike any other God. He delights in being kind. He loves his creation. He gives his salvation to those who have no right to expect it. He comes to the house of men like Zacchaeus and blesses them. Do you know that the great surprise of the Bible is not that God is infinitely mighty? That's the least we would expect from a God, isn't it? The great surprise of the Bible is that this God is astonishingly kind. And that his people can sing, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let me uh, quickly tie this together with one final point that I've called an indestructible hope. Our question is this, how, how does this God that we've been talking about come to us then? And in what way does this cause us to sing? The glory and presence of God is, of course, not found in a temple or in an ancient ark. You know that the living God could never actually be contained in a building or a box, however grand they might be. The universe itself couldn't contain him. These things were always intended to be merely shadows to point us to a much greater reality. And in simple terms, I just want to put it like this. God has come to us in the past. 
He comes to us now in the present and he will come to us in the future. We can sing because this kindness of God makes our hope indestructible. So there is an objective historical aspect to this because here is a God who has come to us and taken up residence in our broken world through his son, the Lord Jesus entering our human race. What a day that was. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. But there is also a kind of experiential or personal aspect to this because God also comes to us and takes up residence in our hearts by his spirit as we believe the gospel and put our faith in Jesus. And so Jesus could say to his friends as he ascended to heaven and left them behind in this world, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. What a day this is. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And friends, there is a glorious future aspect to this to anticipate because this same God will come to us and take up residence among his beloved people forever. Hear these words from the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with man. He's coming home. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The history in the Old Testament that we've been all too briefly exploring is designed to encourage us that God will always bring his people through all of the ups and downs of this life to their true home and then he himself will come to them and live with them there forever. What a day that will be. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. My dear, beloved brothers and sisters, may the astonishing kindness of God be the theme of your forever song.
as you experience him coming to take up residence with you by his grace. Amen.